Today's shir is being given Lezechanishmas Chana Shena Bas Yehuda Leib. This week's parsha is Parshas Mishpatim, and it says towards the end of the parsha, Vayakam Moshe VeYeshua Misharsai. This is when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Har Sinai. He went up to be Makabal the Torah for those forty days and forty nights, and he went. And Yeshua was Misharisim. His his servant Yeshua went along with him. Vayal Moshe Haralikim. And Moshe Rabbeinu alone ascends Har Sinai, the Har Elikim. So Rashi has a whole arichos. Rashi discusses what exactly Yeshua was doing in this scene. It says that Moshe Rabbeinu goes and Yeshua was with him and then Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to Har Sinai. So Rashi says, so what is Yeshua here for? What's, what, what, did he, what did he accomplish by escorting Meshra Abenu, did he, he didn't go up with him, did he go home, what happened to Yeshua? So Rashi says that Yeshua nata sham aloi. Yeshua escorted Meshra Abenu to the foot of Har Sinai as far as he was able to go, and he pitched his tent there, v'nis akev sham kal mem and for the entire 40-day period, he was nisakiv sham. He waited for Moshe Rabbeinu's return. <clears throat> now clearly this was an act of providence that Yeshua should be there because if, let's say, Yeshua had gone home, he might have gotten caught up with the whole Maisei Egal. Aaron was the one that had to... Um, control the crowds that were rapidly looking for a substitute for Moshe Rabbeinu. Perhaps Yeshua was sent here uh, presciently to be able to avoid the problems that Aaron Akain had to go through. But it's just strange, B'derech HaTeva, just what exactly was Yeshua's role in staying by the mountainside for 40 days and 40 nights. I mean, presumably Yeshua had a family, Yeshua had uh, Talmidim, Yeshua had uh, a shear to give, to go to, something. He must have had things to do during those 40 days. What was the point of him just standing there, waiting for Meshur Abenu until he comes down from the mountain? Was it for the covet of Meshur Abenu that he was staying there? Does Meshur Abenu need his covet that he should... Uh, be, be sitting there waiting for him until his return. This is not my question. This is Ramesh Feinstein's question. Ramesh Feinstein in his Sefer Kol Ram, he asks this. He says, why did uh, Yeshua wait here for 40 days? He knew, Yeshua, that Moshe Rabbeinu was not coming down before 40 days. It's not like he thought maybe he'd come down sooner. He knew that it was a minimum of 40 days that he had before Moshe Rabbeinu's return. So why didn't Yeshua go about his business for 40 days and come back Erev the uh, Erev Moshe Rabbeinu's arrival? Why did he have to stay there? Nisakiv sham kol mem yaim. I was thinking to offer a pshat based on a maisa. 
A Misa that I heard personally from Reb Shlema Warman, Zechitzadik Levracha, Reb Shlema Warman was the Roshiva of Hebrew Academy of Nassau County. And the last years of his life, for those of you that may be old enough to remember him, I don't think anyone in the room is, but he lived a short distance away from Yeshiva. He used to daven in a shul, and that shul moved too far away, so we got him as a great pickup. He started davening by us. And he was a man in his 80s when he davened here, and I think he must have davened here for maybe five, six years, the last years of his life, and he was already very old. They, Bachram had this chus of uh, wheeling him in a wheelchair back and forth on Shabbos mornings, and um, he was a Talmud Chacham muflug. The word Talmud Chacham is thrown around very easily these days, but Rabbi Warman was a Talmud Chacham is Talmud Chacham. He wrote over 20, I believe close to 20 volumes maybe, of real Lamdash Svarim, one after another, the Sheiris Yasef and the Iris, Iris of Chaga Pesach, Chaga Sukkos, there are many, many, many Svarim with over a thousand Shtiklach Taira. By his Levaya, I was masked him, and I said, Ha'elach Lucha Shleima, you have a thousand Shtiklach Taira, but real Taira, Real Tyra, over a thousand pieces of Tyra that were used by G'dayli Yisrael, the Askamas were incredible. Anyway, he was a Talmud Muvuk of Reblazer Silver. Reblazer Silver was one of the early G'dayli Yisrael on the level of Ramesha Feinstein, Rebiak Kamenetsky, Aaron Gutler. In that dark day of America, Reblazer Silver was one of the great Manhigim. He was a Rav in Cincinnati. And he had a small group of Talmidim. Rav Warman was probably his most prominent Talmud. And Rav Warman used to tell us beautiful stories about the closeness that he had to this Rav Blazer Silver and how he basically raised him and how he took care of him and how he was like a father to him. And he told me once a story how Rav Blazer Silver, who was very involved with Gedalim and with Hatzalah, um, I don't mean Hatzalah, the ambulance service. I mean Hatzalah of Jews in, in, in Europe after the war. Famous stories about Rebbe Silver going over in an American uh, military uniform, uh, going to DP camps, giving chizuk, food, whatever he could to help the Nitzrachim in Europe after the war. And so he was very involved with all the G'daylam around the world and, you know, dealing with all types of issues that were necessary. So Rabbi Warman said that one morning he was in his Rabbi's shear, Blazer Silver was giving shear in his house, and the phone rings, and it was the Briskarov. The Briskarov was calling a Blazer Silver. So Blazer Silver, of course, interrupted the shear, and he ran quickly to get his special Shabbos hat. If anyone ever saw pictures of Reblazer Silver, he had a famous cylinder hat, like a top hat, like a, one of those very uh, you know, fancy top hats that you see that's made of silk. And that was his signature hat. It's called a cylinder or a top hat. And he was wearing this top hat for the entire call to the Briskarov, with the Briskarov. And he was standing the entire time and he was like, you know, with, with all covered, pure covered for the briskarov. And young Shlema Warman was looking at this and he found it a little bit odd. And after the phone call was over, he took his tap, 
top hat off, and he sat back down, and he said, Rabbi, you know, it was a phone call. It wasn't, he couldn't see you. So what was the point of putting a top hat on and standing? You could have sat, you could have not had the top hat. He couldn't see you anyway. What kind of covet is it for him if he couldn't see you anyway? So Blazes Silver looks at his Talmud and he says, Do you think that the Briskarov needs my covet? The Briskarov is, is Kulay Aymer covet. The Briskarov doesn't need anyone's covet. There's no covet that the Briskarov needs from me. When I'm giving covet, when I'm standing up the entire call, and when I'm wearing my Shabbos hat, it's for me. It's so that I feel the Meira Malchus, I feel the Kavad Atayra that I have to have for the Briskarov. It's not that the Briskarov needs my covet. I, by doing the right things, by showing covet to the Briskarov, it's enhancing my Kavad Atayra. The covet is for my awareness of how great the Tyra is. It's not that he should see me, it's for me to be able to see myself and to see my relationship with the Tyra. <clears throat> and I was thinking that maybe that could be a kavana in what Yeshua was doing. Yeshua was not doing it for the covet of Meshra Abenu. Meshra Abenu was up in Shemayim, he was speaking to the Rabbi Shalom, he was getting the Tyra, he was learning Tyra, he was debating the Malachim to be able to bring the Tyra down to us. Meish Rabbeinu didn't need Yeshua to sit by a tent waiting for his arrival. Meish Rabbeinu was beyond that. But Yeshua had to show himself and Klal Yisrael what Kabbalah Tyra is. Whether Meish Rabbeinu realized that he was doing it or not, but Yeshua had to show and Yeshua had to strengthen the issue of Kavadah Taira. And so he, by staying in his ayah for 40 days, waiting for Meshra Abenu, giving Meshra Abenu that Kavad, it was for himself. It was for Klal Yisrael. This is what, a, this is what you do for Taira. This is what Taira deserves. Rameshra says the following though. He says that we see from here how great the love was that Yeshua had for Meshra Rabbeinu, his Rabbi. You see the Chavivos, that it was so hard for Yeshua to part from Meshra Rabbeinu. Meshra Rabbeinu was going up for 40 days and 40 nights. Of course, technically Yeshua could have gone home, could have gone on vacation, could have... Uh, you know, learned on his own, could have given shirim, could have spent time with his family. He didn't have to be Mashari Smeisha, he had off for 40 days. But his relationship to Mashra Abena was so strong that it was physically impossible for him to leave Mashra Abena. He couldn't leave. Even if he would want to leave, he couldn't leave. I think that that's Meduyak in the Lashon of Rashi. Rashi doesn't say that Himtim Sham Kal Memyan that he waited there. It says a Lashna Akev Sham Kal Memyan. He was Nisakev. Nisakev means like there was an ikov. There was something that was restraining him from leaving. He wanted to go home maybe, but he wasn't able to. He was so magnetically attached to his Rebbe that 
He had to stay as close to his rabbi as possible. His love, his relationship, his his feeling of I need my shabbenu. I can't. I can't live without him. There was like an umbilical cord that was attached between Yeshua and Meish Rabbeinu and Yeshua could not go out of a certain radius from Meish Rabbeinu's place. Meish Rabbeinu goes up to Sinai and Yeshua was not able to go home. He was not able to leave him. That was what the Torah is telling us by telling us that Yeshua was his Mishares and he didn't leave there until Meish Rabbeinu returned. He wasn't able to leave. This is hard for us to understand. Hard for us to understand. And the reason why we don't understand it is because we don't really understand what a Rebbe is and what a Rebbe-Talmud relationship is really supposed to be. We look at a Rebbe perhaps as somebody that teaches us. Somebody that teaches us, gives us over Taira, he gives us over Musar, he gives us knowledge, Kedusha maybe, Hashkafa, all that is what a Rebbe is, but that's not really what a Rebbe is. When a person has a Rebbe, what it's supposed to be is, it's a relationship that's life-giving. The Rebbe is doing nothing short of giving you everything. Your very essence, your very being, your very ability to breathe comes from your Rebbe. A Rebbe is not just merely a teacher. I have a teacher in Gemara, I have a teacher in chemistry, and I have a teacher in, uh, in physics. A Rebbe is not that relationship. It's not a teacher. A Rebbe is somebody that's giving life to a person. Now, there's a famous Rambam the Rambam says that we learn from Meseches Makas that if a Talmud goes into Golis, if there's a Talmud that kills somebody, Beshegeg, kills somebody accidentally and in a way that he has to go into one of the Ari Levim, one of the Ari Miklat, one of the cities of refuge. So there's a very strange halacha that a, a Rebbe of this Talmud, the Rebbe of this Talmud, has to pack up his bags and he has to move into the Ari Mikla where the Talmud left, where the Talmud went to. So if a Talmud lives in, uh, in, in Haifa, and that's where, he, uh, you know, and that's where he, uh, he committed the act of killing somebody, Beshaigeg, and he was in a yeshiva in Haifa, and then he has to go into Galas to... Uh, wherever, in Netanya, let's say, the Rebbe has to pack up his bags, say goodbye to his wife and kids, or maybe bring them with him, and also go just to teach this Talmud in the city of Golis that he was exiled to. Why? So the Rambam says, because the Pasuk says by Ari Miklat, one word, that we have to make 
this person that goes into Golos, we have to give him a life. He has to have a life. And the Rambam says, the life of people that are wise or people that are seeking wisdom, if you don't have your Rebbe with you, it's like death. So you're not being Mekayim what the Pasuk wants. The Pasuk wants that this Hayreg Nefesh Bishkaga should have a life in that new existence, in that new habitat of Arimiklat. And if he doesn't have his Rebbe with him, he has no life. He's not alive. And the question that the Bali Musar are plagued by is that where is he going? Is this is this habitat that he's going to? Is this in uh, you know in in Yehupitz, that there's absolutely no Tamid Chachamim there? He's going to a city that's packed with Tamid Chachamim. It's packed with Levim. Who are the Levim? The Levim were the people that were learning all day. It's like saying, you know, a, a person is is hired for Chicago, and he's he has to go to Lakewood for uh, that's where his Gullis is. So his rabbi has to go and pack up his bags and go with him to Lakewood. Do you know how many Tamid Chachamim of Hakim there are in Lakewood? Do you know how many Shiurim there are? How many Ion Shiurim, Bekiyos, Dirshu, Dafyaimi, Mishnabura, Musar? I mean, you have everything there in Lakewood, right? You need a rabbi from Queens to go to Lakewood to give a Shir to this Bachar? Like, it doesn't make sense. What does it mean that Bechai, he has no life if you don't come with him. How does that work? He's going to a city of Levim. He's mamish going to one of, to one of many Lakewoods in Eretz Yisrael. Every Ari Levim is a Lakewood. Every Ari Levim is a Bnei Brak. It's full of Tamid Chacham and Mavakim. That's where the Levim were. Levim were Kyle guys. So what does he need his Rebbe from Queens or from Haifa or from wherever? There's plenty of Tamid Chacham in the Ari Miklot. What's the Ram I'm saying? If you don't have your Rebbe, you don't have a life. Okay, find a new Rebbe. The answer is that that's not the way it works. A Rebbe is not a teacher. If you want raw wisdom so you can get a teacher wherever you go, there are online courses. You don't need to be in a yeshiva even. A Rebbe's relationship with a boy is not to give over wisdom. That there's plenty of opportunities for. But when you have a Rebbe... And you're comfortable with that Rebbe, and you feel that you have a connection with that Rebbe, and that it clicks, he gets you, he loves you, there's a Chavivas, there's a relationship, you're on his wavelength, he's on yours, and there's something special between you, that's not replaceable. You can go to Lakewood, you can go to Panovich, you can go wherever you want in the world, but that relationship is a life-giving one. There is no substitute in the world for that specific Rebbe, for that specific relationship. And if you try to sever that relationship, and you make a person leave that Rebbe, even if there's many other options elsewhere, but it's not that option. And that's Kemisa Chashuvim. To leave that specific Rebbe that I have a Zika towards, that I have a relationship with, that I gain so much from, and that I understand is my Rebbe, that you can substitute. If you have to tear that person away from the Rebbe, that's Kemisa Chashuvim. That's like death. 
There's a beautiful line in a Gemara in Kedushan Samachvava Mebez. The Gemara speaks about uh, Rabbi Akiva was giving a very complicated um, shear. A whole sugya that Rabbi Akiva was dealing with, very technical sugya. And at the end of his shear, Rabbi Tarfan looks at Rabbi Akiva and he says words for the ages. He says, Akiva, Whoever leaves you is like leaving life itself. He wasn't just using poetic Lashon Reb Tarfin. Reb Tarfin saw Rabbi Akiva as life itself. Without you, I'd be dead. I, I don't know what I would do without you, Akiva. I'm just like a person doesn't want to leave this world. A person does not want to die. A person does not want to end his existence in this world. That's how it is with a relationship with a Rebbe Talmud. I can't leave you. I, I, I could sooner die than leave you because it's the same thing to me. A Rebbe that's teaching Teres Chaim. A Rebbe that's Bonecha Elu Talmidim. A Rebbe that is giving from himself to you, you can't leave such a Rebbe. It's Kaparish Menachayim. It's like leaving life, just like nobody leaves life. Nobody, you just, you can't leave a Rebbe that you have that relationship with. You can't. Rav Huttner once spoke to a Mesiftabacher and he was so impressed with this boy, with this young boy, that he said a Lashon of Chazal on this young man, that Muftachani, I know that he's going to be a Gadol B'Yisrael. I know that he's going to be a Gadol B'Yisrael. I don't know who this boy ended up being, but what was so impressive about him? Rav Hutner asked him the following simple question. And it's something that we should ask ourselves as I'm asking it to you. He says, you have in the morning a Rebbe and Shir, and then you have lunch, and then you have afternoon classes, English, secular studies. Now, you have a Rebbe in the morning, and you have a, let's say, an English teacher in the afternoon. They're both teaching you, right? They're both teachers. They're both on the payroll. They're both part of the faculty. <clears throat> how do you see, how would you touch up, how would you define the difference between your relationship with your Rebbe and your relationship with the professor, with the teacher that you have in secular studies? Maybe, they, maybe there is no difference. Maybe you'll tell me they're the exact same thing. How do you see the difference? How do you define the difference in your mind when you see your Rebbe or when you think about your Rebbe and you think about your English teachers? Is there a difference? How, is the, what is the, how do you understand? How do you explain the difference to me? So the Talmud thought a second and he said the following brilliant answer to Rav Hutner. He said... You know, there's two ways for a human being to get nutrition. When a human being is born, so 
the Rabbani Shalom made a system by where in his infant years he gets fed by his mother. He sucks from his mother and that's where all of his nutrition comes from. He gets older and then he he's weaned off of that and then he starts eating and you know, let's say you go and you ha- you're on the meal plan in Lander College and you know, you uh you know, you take your, your styrofoam plate and you and somebody's, let's say, doling out the food on your plate and they give you, you know, your macaroni or your uh, or your schnitzel or whatever it is, and they're they're putting it on your plate. Now, both your mother and this person who's feeding you in the cafeteria, they're both giving to a human being food, nutrition. You're, you're getting food from both. But can you say that it's the same thing? Would anyone compare the two? The person that's putting the food on your plate, he means well and he's giving you nutrition. You have to say thank you. But it's, it's, he's not giving you something from himself. He's doing a mechanical act of feeding you. He's basically taking something and putting it on your plate, taking something, putting it on your plate, wishing you a nice day, and that's the end of the relationship. He's giving you something for sure, and you're getting nutrition from it, but it's a mechanical act of giving over something to another person. You can't say that about your mother. When your mother gives you nutrition, it's from her essence. That milk that she's giving is from her tamsis, it's from her essence, it's from herself. She's giving of physically from herself to you to give you that nutrition. It's a different relationship altogether. He says, the English teachers that I have are wonderful, and they give, and they're nice, and they're fine. They're wonderful. But I don't feel when I get the Chachma from them, that they're giving from themselves. They're teaching me something, but it's by rote. They're teaching me something mechanically. They're teaching me something, and it, it might be something that's very important to them. And they're giving it over, and they mean well. But I don't feel that it's from themselves. But when my Rebbe teaches me Tyra, I feel that he's not just um, teaching me Chachma. He's not just giving me you know, tools that I'm going to need for life. I feel that he's giving me from himself. I feel that this is his essence that he's giving to me. This is what he lives for, and he's giving me a chios. He's giving me from his actual existence in life. He's giving all of that and more to me in a way that only a mother could give to a child. That's how I see the difference between a Rebbe and the English teachers. It's a life-giving relationship. It's life. It's life itself that he's giving. Rav Hutner said, Muftachani, I know that this boy is going to be a... And then he also said, Rav Hutner, just parenthetically, that this is why Rav Chaim Velazhner, when he started his revolutionary yeshiva in Velazhner, the Talmud Mubak of the Vilna Gain, he changed the nomenclature of, of what a yeshiva bacher was called. He started insisting that a yeshiva bacher is called a ben yeshiva. 
A ben yeshiva means a son of a yeshiva. Why, why, why that? It should be a Talmud of a yeshiva. What's a ben yeshiva? He says because it's a son, it's a child. The intent of the yeshiva was to give over like a mother to a child, chachma. Like a mother to a child, chiyos. Life. That's what yeshiva is supposed to be. It's a relationship. It's a... It's a ben to an av, a ben to an aim. That's what, that's what yeshiva is supposed to be. You're a ben yeshiva. You're a suckling from the yeshiva. You're taking your chiyas from the yeshiva itself, from the rabbeim. Rebarach Ber was a rabbi of Reb Shlaima Hyman. Reb Shlaima Hyman was Rosh Shiva and Tarvadas. A tremendous tamachach, a tremendous lamdin. The whole yeshiva world learns Reb Shlaima Hyman's Taira. And he was a Talmud Mubak of Rebarach Ber. Rebarach Ber wrote a beautiful letter to Reb Shlaima Hyman. And it's in my book, Great Jewish Letters. I tried so hard to find the original letter, but it it disappeared. It was one I know exactly where it was supposed to be, but it wasn't there. But we do have a, a copy of not an, not an original copy, but a uh, somebody typed up what the content of this letter was. It's a beautiful letter where Baruch Bear was basically telling how he feels to Herb Hyman about the relationship, and. He says the following line. He says, Kedai Haisa Leidasi. Rebarach Ber writes to Rabshlam Haiman, it was Kedai my birth. It was worthwhile for me to be born. The Chevle Leidas Imi. And the birth pangs that my mother had to have, the labor pains that she had when delivering me, all of those intense pain were all Kedai. It was all justified and worthwhile and vindicated. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu has merited me to have such a student like you. That was the Chavivas that Rebarach Ber felt towards Rebbe Ayman. My entire life is worthwhile because I have you as a Talmud. It's a two-way street. My life is Kedai when I have a Talmud like you. And your life is able to be a life because you have me as a Rebbe. Rabbi Avram Grzynski, who was the Mashkiach in Slabotka, Talmud Muvak of the Altar, he became the Mashkiach of Slabotka himself. He was killed by the Nazis in Machshimam during the war. But the last two years of the altar's life, the altar moved from, from Slabotka to Eretz Yisrael, where they had started a, a branch of Slabotka called Hebron. It was in, in Hebron, and then, of course, in, um, in the 1920s, the late 1920s, there was a terrible Hebron massacre um, where so many Karbanis um, were brought on the Mizbeach by that terrible, uh, terrible pogrom in Hebron, and then eventually the yeshiva moved to Yerushalayim. It's still called Hebron, but it's in, today it's in Yerushalayim proper. <clears throat> but the altar moved to Eretz Yisrael those last two years of his life, and his Talmud, Rav Ram writes a letter, and in this letter, 
he laments the fact that he didn't go with the altar those last years of his life. He says, I'm so, like, how did I leave him? How did I allow the altar to go by himself to Eretz Yisrael and I didn't go with him? Now, he had a big job in Slabotka. He was the mashkiach of Slabotka. That was a very big responsibility. He wasn't like doing nothing in Europe. He had plenty to do, but he, he couldn't understand how he permitted himself to take leave of his Rebbe or to allow his Rebbe to take leave of him. The altar died like uh, within a year and a half of his arrival in Eretz Yisrael and Rav Grzynski, like never forgave himself for not accompanying him. He writes as follows, Hakol hakol kvar avar. Now everything is gone. Now that the altar was nifter, everything is lost. Mischaret ani charoto gimura. He says, I have complete and utter regret and remorse. Sha'azavti es mekar mayim chayim. That I have abandoned the wellspring of my life. Bishono mechsach rain in this last year and a half. And more so, I missed the, this new period in the altar's life. Imagine the altar coming to Israel, a brand new chapter in the altar's life, and I missed it. I didn't go with him. I didn't stay in, in Israel with him to learn by his feet there. At least for a month I should have gone. I couldn't find a month in the year and a half that he was there that I could have gone and learned by him. What was I, crazy? What was I thinking that I didn't go? Because this is the nature of the relationship between a Rebbe and a Talmud. A Rebbe and a Talmud is not just a teacher. It's not a professor. This is not a put-down of professors. There are many professors in Lander College every, and many high school teachers throughout the world that are very dedicated and wonderful people, good role models. But a Rebbe is a Rebbe. A Rebbe is somebody, if he's a real Rebbe, somebody that has dedicated his life to the Chachmas HaTayah, to, to being Mechayez Talmidim, to not just teaching his Talmidim how to learn, not just giving them a little Musr, but giving of his very life, of his very essence to the Talmud. And there's a unique relationship. It's not a, a relationship that could be re- replaced by another Rebbe. You can have several Rebbeim, but every relationship is unique and special and irreplaceable. You can go to the biggest Ari Mikla with all the Levim in the world, I still have to come with you because we have a relationship that no one else can reproduce. That's the Chiyos. That's the nature of a Chai. A Talmud gets those life-sustaining waters from a Rebbe and one Rebbe, a unique Rebbe in his life that changes everything about his life, that gives him something that he didn't have before and that will shape and contour the entire existence henceforth. I think I told you once, but I don't know if you remember. Um, I wrote a book, and I thought that Artsco would publish it, but they weren't interested in it. But foolishly, I, may, I guess I should have really um, 
you know, asked them if they liked the idea before I went and wrote 350 pages worth. But uh, whatever, that's me. I just, you know, shoot first and ask questions later. And I wrote a book on, I thought it would be like the best of the whole series, better than letters and treasures and speeches and classics. I thought that this would be it. It would be, it would be like the defining book. But they didn't want it. It was called, uh, it is called Great Jewish Poetry. And basically I found well over a hundred poems from G'dayle Yisrael. Some of them were known Paitanim of the Rishainim, the Kadmainim. And I took the famous ones that they wrote and I translated those uh, into English. And if it rhymed in the original Hebrew, I, I rhymed it in English. Um, but there are poems from the Achreinim that you would never think in a million years that they would have written a poem, but they were quite excellent at writing poetry. And, you know, the Briskarov and the Chazanish and Rav Hutner and, and uh, Rameir Shapiro and, and the Altaf and Kellum and the Altaf and... Unbelievable poetry. And I found it and I was... I, I gathered it wherever I could find them and I, I took a long time for me to find these poets, poems. It's not easy to find them. And I translated them. I put so much work into it. And then when it was all done, I sent it to Rabbi Zlatowitz, the Chayna Levracha, and I was waiting for, like, Kailas of Rakham, I was waiting for, like, a standing ovation. And he sent me a Dear John letter. Um, you know, a, uh, no, he sent me a very nice letter, and he basically said that it's a beautiful safer, but nobody's going to buy it. Nobody today is interested in, in poetry. It's not, it's not what people are interested in. So, anyway, I still have it, and... Um, and uh, maybe someday uh, we'll figure out a way to publish it, but it deserves to be published for sure. I want to read to you one poem um, that I translated, and I think it's such a beautiful poem, and it's such a beautiful... It, it drips from this message that we're talking about today, the relationship that a Talmud has to his yeshiva and to his rabbi. It was written by Reb David Rappaport. Reb David Rappaport was a Talmud of Slabotka. He lived in the years 1890 to 1941. He was a grandson of Reb Kiveger. And he wrote the Sefer Mikdash David. The Mikdash David is a, a classic uh, Lamdisha Sefer and uh, also a staple in the yeshiva world. And um, when World War I broke out, Sir David, as many Talmudim, they were forced to flee. They fl he fled from Slabotka to Vilna. And in Vilna, there were a lot of yeshivas that were there during the war. And, um, and there, were, there were... But people during this time was such a, a strange time in history. And everyone was so unsettled. And everybody was like trying to just survive. That they didn't have that same... Yeshiva Das, that they should have for learning. But Reb David, he was in Gaulus, in Vilna, which was a big metropolis, and he was complaining about how everyone was so busy with business and making money, and, and even the yeshivas that were there, or even the shuls that were there, were like empty and dead and quiet, and he missed the Rizcha Dairaisa of Slabotka. He missed his Rabbeim in Slabotka. He missed the Chevron in Slabotka. He had such a love for Slabotka. As we saw 
Avram Gazensky had that same, you know, Meir Malchus for the altar. Rav David Rappaport was desperately missing Slabotka during this, this time in his life. So he wrote a poem. And it was called Rashima Mi Vilna, Notes from Vilna. And I'm going to read it to you. It's a, it's a poem, and it's, uh, but the, the end is, uh, is really the punchline. But before that, it's pretty, pretty good also. The markets and streets are pulsating and alive, while the synagogues barely survive. People swarm like fish through the thoroughfare, but in the synagogues, a few here, a few there. I pass through the marketplace where cash changes hands. Men gather there in the hundreds and thousands. One sees all types of coinage and monies. I ask, do you stock what is more precious than gems, please? But in the, in the market, it's not grasped Torah's value and appeal. It's considered something counterfeit, currency not real. From there I arrive at the place, a miniature temple we deem. Therein people slowly stream. Like shadows, some men stride through, while others sit relaxed on their pew. Outside is heard tumult and uproar, the street's noisy tread. Inside, just silence, like communing with the dead. Why is not the work of heaven, I bemoan, like even that of the maidservant behind the millstone. <clears throat> Professions, larcenies, a business deal, all of that is done with boisterous zeal. But our holy Torah, so pure and clear, is studied in muted tones that one can barely hear. I affirm, this is not the proper place for me, to sit in leisure over my Gemara secludedly. I don't see quiet, calmness, not my desire. I want war, a raging battle I require. To resolve a Talmudic problem, to uproot a mountain at whim, to fiercely debate the complexities of tractate nidarim. Delving deeply, getting straight to the core, with mighty opponents in a full Torah war. With expert scholars proficient in all matters Talmudic with men of penetrating insight grinding mountains by sheer logic, with men who forge new paths, all hurdles they transcend, with men of depth into the analytical sea they descend, with men of deliberation who mix legal concepts and blend. I lift my feet and head to the Kailo. I go and arrive at the clays of Abshal, but no one there can answer, can question nor answer, ask nor tell. Everyone there is in a corner alone, each man to himself in his own private zone. No jealousy or competition, they are happy with their share. These Kyle men are not for me, I declare. I'll follow the single Torah scholars who have more luster. They learn together in a tight-knit cluster. The terror lives in their mouth, strength it does provide. It is they I cherish, from them I'll be satisfied. I sought them, they appear. New young men who came from near, 
But seeing their faces, my head stood on end, my hair stood on end. So pale from grief and hunger I comprehend. Shattered and anguished, some without shoes and dress, they come from the south, Paltava their address. Among them diligent ones who learn aloud, as well as several who are cleverly endowed. From Paltava an entire yeshiva fled. From the sword they ran in fear and dread. But even they lack unity. <clears throat> I notice there with disbelief. As sheep without a shepherd, each one a lonely leaf. For yeshiva devoid of a dean, mentor, and guide is like a door without a lock and bolt inside. Not for such an institution does my soul yearn. I have still not found where I had hoped to learn. <clears throat> I sit all alone in my private space. Memories of Slabotka through my mind race. Oh heaven, my cry pierces the air like a knife. Slabotka, he who takes leave of you, takes leave of life. This is the poem that the Mikdash David wrote. And this is really what a yeshiva is. A yeshiva is not a place that, okay, I'm in yeshiva, I could go to another yeshiva, I go to another yeshiva. If you have a yeshiva, that's your yeshiva. If you have a rabbi, that's your rabbi. And to leave that yeshiva, to leave that rabbi, if it would be a real rabbi, if it would be a real yeshiva, and you would be a real Talmud and somebody that understands what we're talking about this morning, then you can't leave. You can't leave. There's always a Zika. You have to always return or can never leave it. Or in a certain level, never leave. There are people that go very far from many yeshivas, but they're always in that yeshiva. If they were really ever in that yeshiva. This is what Yeshua did. When Yeshua stood by the, in the Ayel for those 40 days and 40 nights, he was teaching Klal Yisrael a lesson in Tyra. As they were being mechen for Kabbalah Satyra, as they were preparing, or they should have been preparing for Meshach Rabbeinu's descent with the entirety of Tyra, Yeshua was teaching them a lesson. This is what a Rebbe and a Talmud is. It's not that, okay, I escorted him to the airport and now I'm back. I took my Shrabenu to our Sinai and I can't leave. I'm this Akev Sham Kamem Yaim. I have a, a magnetic pull towards my Shrabenu. My Shrabenu, I, I could leave life sooner than I could leave my Shrabenu. Yeshua was teaching all of us an important lesson in what a Rebbe Talmud is. A Rebbe Tom relationship is not, a, is not a relationship of wisdom. It's not, my Rebbe is brilliant, my Rebbe is funny, my Rebbe is this, my Rebbe is that, he's great. It's the understanding that there is a bond of life that animates the relationship. Yeshua maybe wanted to go, he couldn't leave. He couldn't leave because Meshach Rabbeinu was everything to him. He had to stay there until Meshach Rabbeinu returned. Like Rav Ram Gudzinski, when the altar left, he wasn't able to live. He had no, he's like, how am I alive here? How did I leave the Makar Ma'im Chaim? How did I let my Rabbi leave? 
Yeshua had that same issue. He couldn't let Moshe Rabbeinu just go and, okay, now I'm back. I can't leave him. I have to be, I can't go up to Arsina either. But I have to be as close to Rebbe as I can. This is what a yeshiva is supposed to be. This is what a Rebbe is supposed to be. This is what a Talmud is supposed to be. If it seems strange what I'm talking about, it's because we don't understand this maybe. Maybe we never had such a Rebbe. Maybe we were never a Zeichet to be Talmidim like this. But I'm trying to at least allow a person and myself to understand what the site of a Rebbe Talmud relationship is. That's very important also. Even if we fall short of that, but it's important to understand what it's supposed to be. And when we define something and we clarify it for ourselves, then that could be the beginning of a, of a new chapter in our lives. A new appearance, a new look, a new, a new feeling of connectivity to that Rebbe. Mara says that you have to be mechabed your Rebbe more than your father. Because a Rebbe brings you Father brings you to this world. And for that you have to be eternally grateful as well. But a Rebbe is a life-sustaining entity that's able to be with you to provide for you to give you the spark of eternity. That's what a Rebbe is. And, and so much more. I heard like legends about my Rebbe, Rav Aaron Schechter, and his relationship with his Rebbe, Rav Hutner. He was a Tama Mubak of Rav Hutner. He took over for him in Chaim Berlin in New York, in Brooklyn. And I just heard, you know, I heard from him himself many things, but just the legends that surround this relationship that he had with his Rebbe. When Rav Hutner was hijacked, Rav Hutner's plane was hijacked in 1973, I believe it was. 70. Uh, 70, okay. 1970. Um, his plane was hijacked, um, and the whole terror world was going crazy trying to uh, get him released from cap- captivity. Him and, and his entourage, he had a, a do- his daughter was on the flight, his son in law. And, uh, and certain key Talmidim and he was coming back from Eretz Yisrael to New York and they, you don't understand it's hard time it's, it wasn't the Talmidim of Rav Hutner was so close to him that this was obviously it would be tragic if this happened to anybody but for this happen, this happened to Rav Hutner was like the unthinkable nightmare and they did everything and anything that they could. They contacted every government official, every pull that they could find, every connection to try to get him released. Nothing, no stone was, tur- was left unturned. And they say, I don't know if this is true, but, you know, Aaron Schechter had a white beard, but he had a white beard for many years, and somebody told me that that, when this happened, when this, this few-week incident happened, his beard went totally white. He couldn't exist without his Rebbe. He didn't understand, like, 
he was going out of it. He was going crazy from the fact that his rebbe was not accessible. That his rebbe was not was in sorrow. And when he came, when they finally got him released, he brought him his kapata to change into right off of the airport, off of the airplane, and he was like mamish and evet kamei rabbi, like a like a like a an evet to a master. That was the entire relationship that he had. Not only him, many others as well. But it's a different relationship. It's a, it's a beautiful relationship that is a singular thing. It's not, don't ever think that a Rebbe is merely a, a, a professor with a beard. That's not what a Rebbe is. A Rebbe is a, is a completely different world. And a Talmud-Rebbe relationship is, is a relationship that doesn't have any parallel in the world. And halavai, we should all feel this way towards our Rebbeim. This love, this chavivas, this not being able to separate, not being able to make a move almost without our Rebbe. And feeling that way about the yeshiva that we're in, feeling that gratitude and that closeness and that love and that, that life-giving relationship. That's what a yeshiva is supposed to be. Kalaperish perish just like you don't want to leave life, you would never want to leave your, your yeshiva. I got letters years after Talmidim leave, how they missed this and they missed that. And they, you know, they don't find equal wherever they move to. They're looking for this rabbi or the, that shmuz or this, you know, this Shabbos, this Yantav, this Purim, this Hanukkah, and they don't find it anywhere. And I'm telling you this because you're in it right now. Don't wait until afterwards to miss it. Understand what you have now. Appreciate it. Make this your relationship. You can have Rabbi Yim and Eretz Yisrael. I know this Shabbos is a big, uh, a big uh, Shabbaton Shabbos. A lot of these Shivas have Shabbatons, and that's wonderful. And you should feel that Zika to those Rabbi and to that, those Yeshivas that you came from. And it's, wonder, it's, it's a beautiful thing. But now this is your Yeshiva. And these are your Abayim, and this is what you have to feel this relationship towards. And in Mitzvah Hashem, when we do that, we'll have a new understanding of Kabbalah Satara, we'll have a new understanding of what we should be expecting from the relationship and what we should be expecting to give to the relationship. And in Mitzvah Hashem, we will have that newness of feeling, this is Chachos, of Chios from Taira. As the Rambam says, Without Chachma, without a Rebbe, there's no Vachai. You can't live. You have to feel that my life is, is, would sorely be missing its very essence without my Rebbe, without my Tyre, without my Shir, without my Chevra. Mitzvah Hashem, we should be Zaycha to this and we should get new eyes towards our Abayim, towards our Yeshiva, and towards the Torah itself. Have a good chance.